Mindfulness Mode 496. Why I like curiosity over non-judgment is that it's a little more active. It's pulling us into the experience. Welcome to the highly acclaimed Mindfulness Mode podcast. So great that you're here. Hey, before we get started with today's show, do you ever have trouble falling asleep? Do you find that is just a really tough part of your day? Well, if that's the case, download my free Sleep Naturally meditation to get to sleep easily and to have a deep, relaxing night's sleep. Go to mindfulnessmode.com forward slash sleep. Hey, Mindful Tribe, we have an international speaker. He's been a guest on the Dr. Oz show quite a number of times. He's spent six months living in silence, living as a monk in Burma. He's done so many mindfulness-related things, so much work in this field. And his goal is to bring mindfulness to people in a practical and relatable way. I'm here with Corey Mascara today. Hey, Corey, are you in mindfulness mode? Yes, I am. It's great to be here, Bruce. You're putting me in mindfulness mode. <laughs> well, and I don't think it takes me to put you in mindfulness mode, but it's uh, it's a great honor to have you here on the show, Corey. So let's get started with what does mindfulness mean to an expert like you? Yeah, good question. It's an interesting one these days with mindfulness growing in the way that it has because historically, mindfulness was just one piece of a larger philosophical framework within different contemplative traditions. And it particularly spoke to like a certain quality of discerning awareness that we could bring to our experience. But now the way it's used, it's more referring to like a way of living, a way of life. So I'll give you both perspectives. When it comes to like that basic awareness, the way I like to describe it as the practice of being with our experience rather than in our experience in a way that's spacious, curious, and, and heartfelt. Compared to some of the, the traditional definitions of mindfulness, you'll notice some distinctions there. The first is that I don't use the word non-judgment, which is common in almost any definition of mindfulness. The reason being is I like to replace it with curiosity. And it's not because I don't think non-judgment is important in mindfulness. I just think curiosity actually accomplishes the same thing. When we embody a moment of curiosity, it's already imbued with non-judgment. Curiosity just has the intention to understand an experience, to get to know it better. And why I like curiosity over non-judgment is that it's a little more active. It's pulling us into the experience. And that was a big piece of my training in Asia with Sayadaw Upandita, he was very much about having us investigate the nature of experience, whether it was the breath, a thought, emotion, pain, sensation. It was very active and he was, um, although we didn't use the word curiosity too much, um, the word investigate was used a lot. And so curiosity for me pulls us in to investigate the experience at the same time accomplishing that non-judgmental quality. And I think in general, when we hear non-judgment, it even though people like John Kabat-Zinn don't mean it this way, it does often set up a precedent or communicate something to a new practitioner that they shouldn't have any judgments at all. And that's not the case. We get to bring like an interest, a curiosity to the judgmental mind. 
So wait, Corey, yeah. I want to dig into this a little bit more. When yeah. you say about non-judgment, of course, we all hear that all the time. You know, you shouldn't be judgmental, but it seems like a natural human trait that we judge ourselves, we judge others. So you're saying, are you that as soon as we notice ourselves judging something or someone, we should immediately look at it as being curious? Is that kind of where we're going with this? Yeah. And, and for anyone listening right now, you could try just taking that perspective on, like, imagine your mind getting caught up in judgment of like, I don't really like that person or like, right. Or why did I say that thing to that person before? Like, I'm such an idiot, right? If we take the approach of like being non-judgmental, it can create an antagonist relationship to ourselves. Like, okay, stop doing that. You're supposed to be mindful. You're supposed to be a good meditator. Right. Versus like, oh, that's interesting. What's that about? Like, where's that thought coming from? What does it create in my body? So the curiosity, it's already bringing non-judgment to the experience and it's a little lighter and playful. It is playful and it kind of is like, oh, it's okay to be curious. Yes. Right. It's okay to be curious and ask that question. Whereas when someone says you should be non-judgmental, it's almost like I just have to replace it with nothing. I just yes. have to stop doing that. And if I stop doing that, there's a void there. Totally. Right. It, yes. Well put. Great summary of it. Yeah. If we were to focus on anything when it comes to the essence of mindfulness, if people could just develop more curiosity toward all aspects of their experience like that would take you so deep into the practice if not become the practice itself right because mindfulness should be playful shouldn't it yeah yeah and yeah and the more we can make it playful and fun the better it is and the easier it is to adopt it into our life right yes that's my whole thing just trying to reduce the perceived inaccessibility of it. Right. Yeah. The more fun and enjoyable and playful it could be, the better. And I don't think it takes away from any of the integrity of the practice. If I agree with you. It. And speaking of life, I love how you've entitled your new book, Stop Missing Your Life. Yes. So many of us are missing our life, but you tell us, how are we missing our life and how can we stop missing our life? Yeah. Well, let me first come at that from a very um, humble perspective. Of like, <laughs> I'm still exploring this for myself. You know, I think we all have ideas of how we might be missing our lives. It could be that we're quite literally on autopilot, going through our moments, rushing through our day that we're, we're actually not there. Or we could be so caught up in ideas for the future that our heads are down I'm missing everything in between. Or we could be racked with stress or anxiety or fear related to trauma that um, we just live our lives in this constant fear-based state. So everyone's going to have their own journey with it. I think in general, what we're seeing in our culture right now is many people moving through moments very quickly with their heads down on automatic, on autopilot, because technology has conditioned this very like quick kind of attention to jump to the next thing. But in addition to that, that's the usual one. When we think of mindfulness, that's usually what we think of like, okay, everyone's not being mindful, their heads are down, they're on their phones. But there's another dimension to missing our lives that I think gets overlooked. And it's often that we're, we have so many walls of guarding that prevent us from connecting to people in the way that we want to, connecting to ourselves in the way that we want to, uh, and being able to experience a sense of fullness and wholeness. And so the book, it's titled Stop Missing Your Life, How to Be Deeply Present in an Unpresent World. 
I'm really interested in presence itself and the many layers that get developed as we, we make space for more of ourselves in the world, more of the richness that we can experience. And that's a skill. That's something that can get developed over time. And mindfulness is, is a big piece of that. And, and so the book kind of explores, like, what are the layers of presence and how do we move to that on a deep level? Right, Corey, I love your story about how you were trying to impress your girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how you got into all of this. Can you share that with our listeners with Mindful Tribe here? Sure, yeah. I think a lot of people, when they think of a meditation teacher, that just there's the assumption that they got into it for very noble reasons or uh, like, you know, kind of a hippie or whatever. I got into it because I was trying to impress my hippie girlfriend in college. I wanted her to think I was cool. So I started meditating. And this is a past girlfriend. She broke up with me about two weeks after that. So there was no, uh, there's no real happy ending with that. But there was a different happy ending, which is that the, the pain of that breakup inspired me to take the practice more seriously, because it was the only thing that was giving me any sort of relief. And quickly, I mean, it went from trying to impress a girl through meditation to a year later, a year and a half later, I was in a monastery with a shaved head um, practicing in silence. It just every, I quickly got into this on a deeper level. So what started with very superficial, from a very superficial place, actually became like a, a deeply inspired place. So I want to ask you about this. Did you start by going into that six months of silence or did you start with a day or two and then maybe a week or two? Tell us about that. I had done, well, so I started doing my MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Teacher Training when I was in college, about six months after I got into meditation. A lot of stuff happened. My father, who's a physician, he was getting into mindfulness right as I was getting into it. And I said, I think I, this might be what I want to teach about. And he said, well, this guy, John Kabat-Zinn, runs a mindfulness-based stress reduction. You could get trained in this. So I started going on those retreats, which were like seven days, but they weren't silent retreats. Part of the mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher training is to go on silent retreats. So the first thing I did when I graduated college was I went on my first seven-day silent loving kindness retreat at Insight Meditation Society. I went with my dad actually, which was which was super interesting. And so we went into that, not really know, knowing what to expect, seven days of silence. Um, and it wasn't a mindfulness retreat, it was a metta retreat. So that's, you know, you're sending wishes of well-being to yourself and to others. Um, so that was my first experience with silence. And I'm a very... Uh, how do we say it in a nice way? I, I guess you just say type A personality. <laughs> I get really, really passionate and obsessed with things. And I was like, oh, okay, did seven days. Let's take it a step deeper. Now let's do six months. <laughs> <laughs> and it was about four months after that silent retreat, the first one, seven days that I went over to Burma. And I wanted the most intense experience I could find. I remember asking my teachers at the seven day retreat at IMS. I was like, listen, I got about six months to a year to do a retreat. Like I want it to be intense. Like I want to cry. I I don't know why I wanted these things. There was just this connection with like more intensity would mean that I would get more out of it, which I don't agree with anymore. It was a much younger kind of perspective, but it did lead me to Pandita Rama in Burma where they said, well, this is one of the most austere monastic settings you could find. You're going to meditate at least 14 hours a day, you're going to wake up at 3 a.m., go to bed at 10, eat two meals before noon, uh, and you're going to study under the, one of the toughest teachers alive. And that was Sayada Upandita. 
and that's kind of how I ended up there. <laughs> and did he seem like a tough teacher to oh, you? Oh, yes. I, it, well, tell me about the toughness. What were the challenges? Well, he, anyone that's kind of been to a silent retreat, at least here in the West, with, with many mainstream teachers, you're going to hear a lot of emphasis on self-care, relaxation, go easy, monitor yourself. Those words were not in his vocabulary. He was interested in one thing and one thing only, and that was for people to get enlightened. And uh, his viewpoint was that that required a high degree of effort and a continuity of awareness moment by moment by moment. So his emphasis was always courageous effort, try and cut your sleep down to four hours or less, meditate in all moments. You should have an awareness of your experience from the moment you wake up, which that's before the eyelids even open. So you're supposed to be like aware that, okay, now I'm awake right now. Now my eyelids are opening. Now I'm standing up. Just like bring mindfulness into every single moment all the way until you fall asleep. No talking at all. If he saw you like walking next to another yogi in a monastery, he would call you out during the Dharma talks. There was a lot of stuff that many might argue is unhealthy. <laughs> you <laughs> yes. see a lot of people go over there that get wound up in a certain way. But the he was coming from a place of extreme heart and tough love. And I really valued the practice um, because it, it caused me to take it seriously. And once you can like kind of see his perspectives as a way to motivate you to practice more deeply and not take it as like being chastised, you can start to uh, develop a really deep flow with the practice. Um, and that happened. But it took, it took a few months before he actually settled in uh, and stopped resisting his teachings so wow, much. Wow. And did yeah. you feel that you became in, enlightened from this experience? Oh, that's such a big word. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I, my next thing was, what does it mean to you to be enlightened? <laughs> right. Right. You know, I had a lot of moments of awakening and uh -huh. seeing through things like the self and the ego and totally shifting my relationship to myself and my world. I I don't know where I stand on what enlightenment is. I, I think by actually any measure that could be created for enlightenment, I haven't met it. That's for that's for sure. Right. <laughs> but I've definitely moved along in the continuum through the practice. And my life has transformed since then. Uh, my relationship to myself has transformed since then. Judgmental thoughts don't really exist in my awareness anymore, which was like a profound side effect of the practice, which... I can't take any credit for it. It's just like the practice did that. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and my version of practical enlightenment, right? Because there's the idea of enlightenment in the Buddhist tradition, but what does it mean in day-to-day -day life? I'm still defining that for myself, but it, it, increasingly the, the, the sense of wholeness um, is coming to mind, making, getting to a place where I can experience more and more dimensions of myself, of my human experience without immediately resisting or making it wrong so that I can feel just the, the fullness of what it means to be in this incarnation of my life. That to me is highly compelling. And anything that takes me deeper into that is, uh, is what I'm most interested in these days. I want to go back to your relationship with your father and going to this event with your dad. Did anything come up from childhood? Any kind of, you know, stories or situations that all of a sudden, you know, like, wow, I see this in a whole new light now and this has a different meaning. Yeah, that's a good one. I haven't been asked that question. I don't know. 
forever. I'm sure there was some stuff in relationship to him at that point, but I'm, I won't speak on behalf of his experience, although like a lot more stuff came up for him at that point in his life. He was going through a lot of transitions. His kids were growing up, his parents, my grandparents were transitioning. So he was at a point in his life where a lot more was shifting. I was at a different point at age like 21, 22, where I was still just exploring this thing. And I, I didn't have a lot of trauma growing up. So um, interestingly, uh, there weren't too many big things that came up. But um, there, there were absolutely these moments of recognition of, um, wow, if I had this practice when I was younger, when I was, I mean, especially like thinking back to middle school and high school, it really would have transformed how I was able to relate to certain experiences that came up, sense of like self-esteem, self-worth. So a lot of that did come into my awareness through these practices. And so did you feel more connected to your father as a result of doing this? Yeah, yeah, it was powerful in that way. I mean, we were both getting into this at the same time and including my mother and my brother, we we actually went on a five-day retreat at Omega in mindfulness-based stress reduction before that silent retreat. So uh-huh. I had done that retreat with them and then the seven-day with my father. And it was really special to explore this with them and to connect on levels beneath just like the normal family dynamics that can be uh, quite complicated to really like, I think more than anything, it helped us connect at a human level, which is powerful. In your book, Stop Missing Your Life, you talk about internal walls and you talk about the pain box. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the pain box is, let's start with the walls. The first chapter of the book is titled Being Human is Hard. And uh, it's not the sexiest beginning because it's being human is hard. And I wanted to take that approach with the book to acknowledge up front that there's a lot that gets accumulated over the course of a lifetime that prevents us from being able to access the present moment fully. Um, There are a lot of ways that we've learned either through childhood relationships or like difficult experiences that we might put in the category of like trauma broadly that prevent us from like wanting to actually be in the present moment. And so all of those walls get put up over time and they can kind of box us into a particular way of being where we might consider, let's just say, being a little bit more authentic. But that authenticity requires feeling some shame. But the last time we felt shame, it was way too overwhelming. We said, whoop, never going to experience that again. So we put up a wall, essentially numbing ourselves to that. And we have all of those that get put up that kind of compartmentalize our experience, but not always in the healthiest way. And when we're trying to access more presence. I mean, presence is deeply vulnerable. It requires letting down our guard. It requires feeling and experiencing more of our life. We will always have to contend with some of those walls. And so the second chapter is all about that pain box and what is required to start moving through some of those walls. Um, uh, These practices, mindfulness and meditation, develop and equip us with a new mental, psychological, emotional capacity to hold the discomfort that comes from moving through some of these walls. But these walls don't actually exist. It's not like there's actually like a concrete slab that we have to move through. 
the reason they're called pain walls and it's called the pain box is because it's just the perceived pain that we would have to experience if we were to move to the other side of that thing. So the more we get comfortable with or grounded in all the different layers of our experience, especially the uncomfortable pieces, um, the less restricted we are by these walls that we've put up over the course of a lifetime. Corey, I'm so glad you talked about authenticity. One of my guests said to me, oh, I hate that word authenticity. I don't even know what it means. Well, what does it mean to you? Yeah. Do you like it or hate it? What? Yeah. It's interesting. You know, if you would have talked to me about a year ago, I probably would have said the same thing about that yeah. guest or, or as the guest did. Yeah. Because it's it's not a word that I've, I use too much in my teachings, mainly because it is complicated and it gets thrown around as a uh, I don't know, a bit of a cliche when people right. just say, be more authentic. Well, what does that mean? Authentic to whom? To what version of yourself, right? Sometimes my mind gets super pouty and it's like, I don't like what's going on right now. Does that mean that we just indulge in that mind? I mean, there's another part of me that isn't pouty. There's another part of me that like, I might say like the higher version of myself, maybe I want to be authentic to that part of me. So my big interest right now is being able to first create space for whatever experience arises without immediately trying to get rid of it. If we could first have that capacity to hold the pouty mind, to hold the sad mind, to hold the joy mind, to hold the grieving mind, and, and stay with it without fighting it, that is the first step to authenticity, just to not have to dismiss our experience out of a re uh, like a reactive uh, response. The next step is then being able to look at all of that and like, okay, well, what is the version of myself like I actually want to embody? Like, what would it mean to be authentic to the person I'm trying to become in that moment? And I think that's often a missing link when we're talking about authenticity and how I like to conceptualize it for myself and when teaching my students about it. Corey, when you started writing the book, Stop Missing Your Life, what was the one or two major points you wanted to get across to the reader? Mm, yeah, the first was I wanted to push back on this popular notion of just be present and not push back on it because I don't agree with it, but push back on the idea that it's easy or simple. Uh -huh. What I talk about in the introduction is just how, you know, you see the idea of just be present all over the place. Like it's on uh, uh, in magazines, you hear it on the radio, people want to do it in school. And everyone's just saying, like anytime something goes wrong, say, oh, just be present, just be present. As if it's so easy. And there's a lot of depth to it. And when we throw it around like this, this simple platitude, where it falls short is that for many people are like, yeah, just be present. I could do that. But it makes sense when things are good. It stops making as much sense when things aren't good. And those are the nuances of like, why would I want to be present in the difficult moments? I want to be present for the good stuff, but not so much the bad stuff. And I really wanted to build out the argument in the book of presence includes all of it. It includes showing up for the full thing, everything that's great in your life, the relationships, love, the joy, and the difficult stuff, the pain, the stuff that you're processing, the grief. Um, and as we do that, as we show up for the full thing, what's compelling about that uh, is that we move to deeper experiences of wholeness that you can't get if you just try to be present for the good stuff and not the bad stuff. Because it is true, oftentimes when we are present for the difficult stuff, it can actually make the difficult stuff a little bit more intense. It can feel easier to numb to that. So why would we focus on it? Well, 
by not focusing on it, by numbing to it, we compartmentalize and we don't just numb to the bad and experience the good, we end up numbing to the whole thing. So if we really want to live a full, rich life, it does mean showing up for the whole thing. So that was the first thing. I wanted to really push back on that notion. And I did want to introduce this idea of spiritual bypassing, which was almost going to be the whole book in itself and ended up just being like a small part of chapter two. But this idea that we use um, notions or concepts like enlightenment or happiness as the endpoint that we're working for and end up subsequently avoiding the messiness of life, trying to prematurely transcend it before we've done the actual work of making peace with those things. Um, and spiritual bypassing is a very common experience in a lot of uh, meditation circles and even just the world of personal development. We quickly go, oh, I want to be happy. And a happy person doesn't get angry. So when anger arises, we go, nope, just be calm. And we kind of hold it all in and pretend like we're not angry rather than doing the work of becoming curious about the anger. Like, what is this? Where is this pointing to? And that's the thing that actually starts to uproot it in a significant way, not just masking it by trying to be the person that's happy or enlightened. I'm interested to talk to you about your appearances on Dr. Oz, because when you go on a show like that, you have to almost oversimplify everything in order yeah. to chunk it down and make it like a very quick and you know people are watching tv and they want to see things they want to see solutions in 30 seconds or <laughs> solutions in one minute and so you have to kind of make it look very very simple but in your book you're starting out by saying you know hey it's not that simple being human is difficult so did that kind of go against the grain a little bit when you would go on the show and try to make this look simple or how did you feel about that Oh, torn is the, the key word. You know, Dan Harris asked me the same thing on his podcast or something similar. And my response to it always has been like, I'm interested in creating bridges for people to get to this work that wouldn't typically be receptive to it. And if that means introducing a concept that is relatively simple and reduced, that like at least gets them open to, oh, yeah, I could do that. Or I might be interested in this mindfulness thing. And then that door opens and they start to see, oh, if I wanted to go deeper, it would require a little bit more. Then that ethically I'm okay with. It would be interesting for me to go back to some of the early stuff I've done with media and how I presented it. But I do remember early on, like talking to producers of shows like that and like giving them my spiel of like what mindfulness is. And they're like, okay, that's great. But you got to say it in like this sound bite over the course of 30 seconds. I'm like, what? Like that goes against everything I believe in. So that there certainly is some compromise. And I do think it's possible to communicate this stuff with a level of simplicity in a shorter way than I typically would. But it is still an ongoing challenge. And the same is true with Facebook ads, with promotion, with social media. You just can't communicate all the depth of the practice. And I think that's okay. I speak to people's known spoken, which is the thing that they know that they need that they would speak out loud, which is usually like, I'm feeling stressed, I'm feeling overwhelmed, I need to improve sleep. I might know the known unspoken of what they might actually need, which is like when you hold the fullness of your experience and make space for it and give yourself permission to be human, like that's when stuff starts to shift. But nobody wants to hear that. They don't want to hear anything about wholeness. They just like, help me be less stressed, help me sleep better. So I start with that and then we kind of take them deeper into it when they want to. Corey, you have a, a new podcast, which just started. I'm so excited about it because it's, it's fascinating and you teach so much practical uh, information about mindfulness and your podcast is called Practicing 
human. And I think it's a great show. I mean, a couple of the episodes dealing with difficult people and how mindfulness leads to happiness. And then you come on and you talk about it. What were some of your major goals when you set out to create this podcast? Yeah, I just wanted to fill a gap in my teachings. You know, I do a lot of one-off workshops, whether it's a speaking engagement for a corporation or these longer retreats of five days or weekend. And it's great. And people go into, they have often some big transformative experiences, but you get back into life and it's hard to keep this stuff at the forefront of your mind. And I think the value of what people like you are doing, Bruce, is like you give people a place, like touch points to come back to and go, oh, this is important. And then a couple of days go by, it's like, wait, what was I doing? And then you get another episode and it's like, cool. And it keeps it on the forefront, like a little shower for your mind, you could say. And so I, I wanted to provide like very short tidbits, 10 minutes a day that are practical, usable, that people can use in the morning or at any point throughout the day just to keep these ideas, just to keep what's essential, essential. And that was the main motivation for it. I'm just really interested in how people can make change. And I think like consistency of ideas and making that at the forefront is a huge first step. Corey, I always ask a question about bullying. Were you ever bullied? Do you have a story about bullying? Maybe you were a bully at one point. I don't know. But do you have a story you can share with us where mindfulness would have made a difference? Yeah, sure. Um, I, you know, the one thing I talk about in the book is this, uh, this experience I had when I was in seventh grade. There was a uh, it was right when I was going through puberty. And I started out as this like cute little boy. And then just parts of me started to shift and grow and specifically uh, my nose. So you can kind of see, well, if you're watching the video version, I have like this little Sicilian bump on my nose. And that part of my body grew before anything else when I was going through puberty. And um, I, I didn't really, I wasn't aware of it, but I remember walking through the hall and this guy, Benny came down the stairs and he was like the, the most popular kid in class, but also like the class bully. Um, and I was walking by and he made this comment in front of everyone. It's like, look at this guy. He looks like Big Bird. Um, and it just like everything in me, like I just went into an internal cave. Like I smiled nervously and like walked away. And that sparked this journey, at least for the next several years of like looking in the mirror and hating my nose um, and didn't really have any reason. I was embarrassed to talk about it. I like, wouldn't even talk to my parents about it or family. So it's just like this, all this emotion that I was bottling up. And then things shifted and I grew into myself and um, didn't think anything of it until I went on my first mindfulness retreat. We were doing a body scan. Everything was like neutral in my body. And then I came up to my nose and I felt this wave of emotion, insecurity, fear, sadness. And it just showed me how much was actually stored there. The mindfulness practice helped me shift that relationship to that part of my body and release some of those micro traumas. But it would have been... a uh, just so beneficial to me at that time to to be able to process some of that emotion that was getting stored in my body and also in my mind, uh, rather than just like having to hold it all in, not feel like I could talk to anyone, um, and taking it as a jab at my own self-worth and identity. Corey, you've done so many great things in this field of mindfulness. Uh, You've worked with Brendan Burchard. You've done all kinds of fascinating things. What's one thing you would love to do if you had a chance, if you had an opportunity, but it hasn't arisen yet? Oh, wow. That's an interesting question. Well, it's a 
couple things. What I I want to do more retreats in my life right now. I'm really interested in working closely with people in person. Um, so uh, I'm trying to organize my schedule in such a way that I can do four um, five day retreats back to back to back to back over the course of a month, uh, twice a year. Um, that I'm really interested in with a smaller group of people to really go deep with those people. Um, that that is a uh, yeah, that's the the biggest thing right now, and to hopefully also grow the podcast so that more people can access um, these these teachings. Yeah. And where would you like to do your retreats? I, I would do one on the East Coast of the U.S. and one on the West Coast of the U.S. Still looking at retreat centers, but possibly Omega or Multiversity near San Francisco. Yeah. Well, that's something for us to look forward to. So we can, where can we check this out? Where can we reach you? Yeah. What's your website? Yeah. Well, um, the first thing, if people want resources, I have a great way for you to get meditations, book recommendations, all of that. Um, just if you text your email address to plus one six three one four zero five four six three one, um, anyone will get an automated email to their inbox with all of the resources and just links to any of um, my website if you were interested in learning more. But most of that is just free resources to go deeper into mindfulness, meditation, uh, and all of that. But for the book, stopmissingyourlife.com, you can find more out about it. Practicing Human Podcast is where you could stay uh, most up to date with my teachings. Uh, CoreyMiscara.com is uh, where, where all my workshops are. Yeah. Okay. So stopmissingyourlife.com yeah. and CoreyMiscara.com and that's C-O-R-Y-M-U-S-C-A-R-A. Mm -hmm. Yes. com. So check it out. So many resources there and guided meditations and all kinds of things. So go there, check it out. And uh, Corey, as we move on in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So mm -hmm. just 30 second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who is one person who really made a difference for you in this field of mindfulness? Huh. Wow. Um. John Kabat-Zinn is the person that I really most resonated with when I first started out. And then I have to also say my main teacher in Burma, Sayadaw Upandita. Right. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Corey? Mm, uh, it's helped me make space for them and see the wisdom in all of them. Mm. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. Yeah. Uh, well, I focus on the breath during my meditation practice, uh, always in the beginning as a stabilizing point. Um, and now it's just the thing that I get to come back to at any point throughout the day if I find myself overly tense. Uh, as soon as I come back to the breath, it's like a Pavlovian response and my whole system settles. So your book is awesome and it's just been released recently stop missing your life how to deeply how to be deeply present in an unpresent unple world <laughs> it's a bit of a tongue twister for me today but yeah. yeah so so grab that book stop missing your life but if there was any other book related to mindfulness what would that be that you would recommend yeah uh two uh, wherever you go, there you are. I think it's just a great uh, beginning book for anyone by John Kabat-Zinn. Um, and I really love, if you want to go a little deeper, maybe interested in Buddhism, uh, Joseph Goldstein's The Experience of Insight, is, I think a very underrated book. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's great. I'll put those... Uh 
those books into our show notes at mindfulnessmode.com. So check that out, Mindful Tribe. And uh, the last question is this, can you share an app which can help people to be more mindful? Yeah, the well, I'm a little biased because the main one I teach on is Simple Habit. Um, and I love what they're doing over there. So the Simple Habit app is, um, uh, is where I have most of my meditations and is the one I'm most familiar with. Um, but 10% Happier is also great. And I love the work that they're doing. Oh, they're doing great work. They yes. really are. Yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. So it's it's been awesome talking to you today, Corey. I've been very, very interested in your work for some time. So it's great to finally connect here. So what would your one last piece of advice be to someone that wants to have a little more mindfulness in their life? Yeah. Be curious about everything. Even the part of you that doesn't want to be curious, everything gets welcomed into your experience. And when we can take that, that approach for the path, that's when we really start doing the work. So, um, yeah, it, 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 it all needs to be honored through and through before we can reach any sort of enlightenment. And uh, I wish you all the best on that journey. So thank you so much, Mindful Tribe. Check out stopmissingyourlife.com. And thank you again, Corey, for being on the show. Thank you, Bruce. You're doing great work. Love the interview. Thanks so much. All the best. Bye now. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest's name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. And remember what I mentioned at the top of the show, this sleep naturally guided meditation that I have for you just for Mindful Tribe members. It's to help you receive the deep, easy sleep that you deserve. Sleep naturally and you'll be able to fall asleep easily, get more work done tomorrow and feel better about it. Rest comfortably without effort. Go to mindfulnessmode.com slash sleep for your free download. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep Mindfulness Mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.